0: Who is Annie Baxter?
1: In short, she was a gunslinging, horse-riding, dingo-hunting cheesemaker. She actually lived on the farm or on the property where our factory is in Yamba. She was an average diary writer, so her diaries have actually been published. It's one of the few accounts from a woman's perspective of what life was like back in those early days. Hi,
0: everyone. And welcome back to the Mold Cheese Collective podcast, where we talk to the makers, growers, farmers and families who just happen to make the best cheese in Australia. We talk a lot about the importance of story here on this podcast and gee, do we have a good one for you today. Here, I talk with Thea Royal from Shaw River Buffalo on not just how they came to be, which is an epic tale, but as we just hinted, the story behind the person who inspired the name of one of their most renowned cheeses, Annie Baxter. To be the first in any field is a challenge. It takes determination, resilience and a laser-like focus on the outcome regardless of the obstacles laid out in front of you. For Shore River, their goal was to make not just Australia's first Buffalo Milk Mozzarella, a challenge within itself, but a semi-hard style as well. They were told it couldn't be done, so they did it anyway and proved the naysayers completely wrong. I don't know about you, but I just love and adore that kind of drive and resilience. It's overwhelmingly inspiring, especially during these crazy times. But I should say, it's not just with Shaw River, but all cheesemakers across this land who strive to be the absolute best they can be. You can probably tell by now, I'm pretty inspired by this conversation with Thea, and I hope you are too. So let's get into it. Thea Royal, welcome to the Mole Cheese Collective podcast. Uh, How are you going? I'm pretty good,
1: thanks Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Now, tell us a little bit about Shore River Buffalo and how it came to be.
1: Well, it's owned by my parents, Roger and Sue Haldane, and the story of my family is a pretty long and rambling one, but I'll give you the short, sharp, (laughs) condensed version. My dad's family, well known for their pioneering escapades, my grandparents um, were involved in pioneering the chino industry in Port Lincoln in South Australia. And my dad, he left school when he was 16 or 15 and went to art school for a year in Adelaide and with a scholarship. And after a year, didn't really like the city life that much. For a young bloke with no contacts in Adelaide, it was pretty lonely. So he um, joined the fishing boat in Eden uh, when he was 16 and was a tuna fisherman for about nine years. He and his brother, Clyde, uh, his older brother, uh, were always doing weird stuff together and um, then the family tuna boat had to convert to becoming a prawn boat. Uh, They were instrumental in actually encouraging the the older generation of Haldanes to try something new. The tuna industry had been overfished and a lot of the fishermen were going bankrupt so they really had to do something drastic and they were the first first boat to fish in the Spencer Gulf reports because of the bravery and I don't know, my dad just has this real I don't think he understands that there's a word that says that you can't do something. <laughs> if, if you're telling him you can't do something it's like a red flag to a bull. Oh, um
0: I, I can relate to that very well as pretty much any of my staff will probably tell you I'm the same. <laughs> what do you mean I can't do it? No, I definitely want I really want to do it now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but the prawning was a lot more seasonal, so they had a lot more time um, that they spent on land. And Dad was uh, somebody who suffered quite badly from seasickness, and he always said the only cure for that was to sit under a gum tree. So um, he and his older brother bought themselves a property just out of Port Lincoln and started to farm various livestock. I sat down with Dad quite a few years ago now and asked him to write a list for me of all of the different species and breeds of animals that they'd had. And before he even had to think very hard, there was about 30 that appeared. So he'd always been interested in exotic breeds and like dexter cows and banting cattle. And they had dabbled in different imports of various livestocks over the years. When I was a small child, we had Australia's largest herd of Angora goats. And so they were interested in fibre production. And as a result of that, they started to uh, research the alpaca. And back in the, the 80s, the alpaca was classed as a, an A-class zoo animal uh, because of it's a um, member of the camelid family. And we have lots of feral camels in Australia. So... It was impossible to bring one out here unless you owned a zoo. So Dad lobbied the government and had to get all of the states and territories to agree to change legislation to allow our packets to come into Australia. And um, after many, many letters back and forth with different, different departments and getting experts from overseas to write things and whatnot, he was eventually successful in having that legislation changed which opened the gate I suppose to allow animals into the country and so my uncle Clyde went across to America and bought 10 alpacas from some um People who would be the type of people that Michael Jackson would get giraffes and monkeys and things from.
0: I feel, I feel there's another story in there somewhere. I was actually thinking just before going, you had to have a zoo, and I was like, did I? Was, I thought you were about to tell me your dad decided to make a zoo. So
1: no, he may as well have. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the time Clyde has spent a couple of weeks in America with um, with Pet Center, they decided that he purchased ten alpacas from them. But they decided after getting to know each other better that clearly they both had skills that would mean that they could work quite well together. And rather than bringing 10 animals, they may as well bring a few hundred. So they were some of the first ones to start bringing um, alpacas out of Chile. So my uncle spent a lot of years up in out of Plano selecting animals and In 89, the first shipment of animals came across to New Zealand on a boat. We had about 350 Hmm. animals or something like that. And um, a year and a half later, we brought them to Australia. So they were the first commercial herds of of alpacas. That sort of started their relationship with Pet Centre and um, they had such a great time working with these guys and they thought, well, what can we send from Australia back to America and there's of course all the wildlife here is protected but there's lots of feral buffaloes so um, we hadn't been long back in australia with the alpacas and there were 70 water buffaloes turn up on the farm from the northern territory Um, wow that was our sort of first introduction to working with buffaloes but the northern territory swamp buffaloes only produce about half a liter of milk a day so they're not really viable as a standalone dairy animal of course they've got know, logistical issues with their horns and they're pretty known for their crazy temperaments. So, But that sort of got Dad thinking about these animals as a, as a future livestock for farming and he read about their cheese production or the use for cheese production in Italy and ended up going to Italy and just decided that that's what they wanted to do. So they imported some buffaloes from Italy. They had to go via Denmark to become citizens of a Scandinavian country. And then
0: they flew them out from Amsterdam. Flew them out from a, Amsterdam. Yeah. So, sorry, like when most people go to Italy, they come back with a story or a cooking class or a favourite <laughs> dish, but your dad's gone over there uh, and decided to fly, like fly buffalo. How many? What's
1: um, pl- there, were, there were 42 in the first shipment. Um, so they went to Denmark and were quarantined there for about 10 months. And then they trucked them to Amsterdam and they chartered an aircraft and brought them
0: out. I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that 42 Buffaloes were on a plane to Australia. Surely there's got to be a story (laughs) behind that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So they left Amsterdam on a Wednesday and they had to land in Tashkent to refuel the aircraft and when they left Tashkent, they were supposed to, try, to fly across um, Chinese airspace, but they didn't have the correct paperwork in place, so they were denied access. So they flew around the Himalayas for a while, circling, waiting, and then eventually they had to go back to Tashkent to put more fuel in the plane. And they stayed on the tarmac there until um, they got approval. So this is in 1995, before everyone has mobile phones and internet and stuff. So we were. It was eventually. It was Saturday morning, and we hadn't heard where the plane was. The people who owned the plane didn't know where the plane was. Oh On board was my uncle and an Australian couple. Oh, <laughs> there. Um, and by the time we eventually got word from Singapore that the the plane was was on its way to adelaide where it was its final destination the dad was in a frantic state worrying about his brother and worrying that the animals had been on a plane now for like 4 days Goodness. um and so he was we were living at Campdown at that point and he hopped in a in a car with my brother and drove across to adelaide and arrived there in the middle of the night and he he couldn't Bear to go to the airport to see what awaited. So he decided to go straight to Torrens Island, where the animals were to be quarantined. So he was driving down Port Road in Adelaide in the middle of the night. There wasn't another car in sight, and he stopped at a set of traffic lights, and two semi-trailer loads of buffaloes pulled out in front of him. Um, They
0: all walked. (laughs) Unbelievable.
1: I know. It's like you couldn't write that. Unbelievable. I
0: unbelievable.
1: My, uh, my uncle had had to, um, they'd gotten permission from the government vet to open the aircraft because um, Tashkent's in the middle of the desert and it's cold at night and hot during the day and he found a bucket and watered as many animals as he could from a small drinking fountain which was a kilometre from the aircraft. So I just imagine him walking back and forwards in the heat. It was such a big undertaking and such a big risk and I mean, just testament to the the stamina of the buffaloes. You know, they're such healthy, amazing animals.
0: Oh, And so, testament to the animals, a testament to the resilience and the, the drive to make it happen.
1: I, I think when people eat cheeses and shop for their food and it's very easy to just take for granted the person that was the first person to... to put their neck out there and actually make that happen, whether it was that they you know, bought a new breed of sheep in or they um they tried a new processing thing or built a new piece of equipment. Somebody has has gone out there and really had a crack at at changing the way that we experience things and the things that we have access to and I'm very lucky to be able to say that my parents have done that on several occasions. And they were very lucky that they were successful at it because not all of their ventures have been successful. But I think that one of the things about my parents, and they're very humble about what they've achieved in their lives, is that they didn't really do it for the pursuit of fame or money. It was really about the experience and being able to share experiences with other people and to bring joy to other people and enhance other people's lives. So, you know, they've always really gotten a kick out of the fact that they employ people and they give back to their communities in a really quiet and humble way. So there's a lot of Roger and Sue Howardanes out there doing great things. And one of the nice things about COVID is that perhaps we're all taking a little bit more time to actually understand a bit more about our environment and and things that are immediately accessible to us. And, um,
0: Oh, here's, uh, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the round <laughs> pegs in square holes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's Kerouac, isn't it? Even though Steve Apple and Steve Jobs tries to take it. The ones who are, think they're crazy enough to change the world are often the ones who do. Yeah.
1: My dad always used to say to us when we were kids, because we were always the weird kids at school He had weird pets and <laughs> stuff. That and so <laughs> He always used to say to us that we don't need to keep up with the Joneses. We are the Joneses. (laughs)
0: So so that's 1995. When was the first, dare I say, commercial buffalo cheese and what was it? What was the first Um, cheese that um, Shaw River made?
1: So we started milking in winter of uh, 1996. And we were very fortunate. We were, at that time, living at Parambit Homestead in Camperdown. And so, originally, our brand name was Parambit Buffalo Cheese. And um, even today, the logo that we have for our product was designed by my dad, who's a very accomplished artist and has designed all of our labels. Um, and the crown that the buffalo wears is actually inspired by the um, carvings that were in the Grand Hall at Parambit Homestead by Robert Prenzel has the same shape little little carvings, just a bit of a trivia. Um, well, we were very fortunate that there was the Bonlac factory in Camperdown and um, a small sheep production um, was happening out of there called Mount Seamy Creek Sheep Milk Dairies. And so the cheesemakers that worked for Robert Manifold in that business were able to help us um, in the initial instances to, to create some cheeses. Um, We didn't know how to make cheese, and working with buffalo milk is different to working with other milks. Um, And we certainly didn't know how to make mozzarella, which is quite an art when you're making it the way that we were making it. Um, So we did have some people that came who were supposed to be experts in in this field, and they weren't able to make the cheese successfully for us, for whatever reason. So we started making some semi-hard cheeses. So a cheese called Buffalino was actually one of the first cheeses that we produced. Um, And that cheese was, we were actually told by cheese experts that you can't make hard cheese from buffalo milk. Um, So potentially one of the first hard cheeses made from buffalo milk. Um, Because traditionally in countries where buffaloes are milked, in Italy it's all made into mozzarella. And in other countries like um, India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka, it's made into short shelf life um, fermented products like yogurts or paneer um, because they just don't have the the storage, refrigerated storage to be, and it's hot and humid, so ageing cheeses is not something that they do. Um, So we made this cheese hoping to produce something that would be a similar melting quality to um, the mozzarella, but uh, allowed us to keep the cheese for longer because it's such a short shelf life product. And at this stage in Australia, there had there had never been a buffalo milk cheese eaten in Australia before we started producing them. Um, the only people that knew about buffalo milk products were people that had travelled overseas so, yeah. and had experienced them over there. Yeah. So yeah, um, we're trying to get the chefs to embrace this new product, which had a short shelf life, and you know, ideally is best eaten uh, as fresh as you can get it. We've gotten much better at preserving the quality of the products now for a longer period of time with you know, better refrigeration and cooling techniques and all those sorts of things. But in Italy, there's a saying that if it's not eaten on the first day, it's sent to Rome, and if the Romans don't don't eat it in Rome. By the third day, it's sent overseas. <laughs> so <laughs> um, in most Italian cheese factories, they have a line-up of people out the front door and they're selling it before it's even chilled. So quite a different experience to how you would eat it here in Australia.
0: You mentioned before about how buffalo milk is very different to mm-hmm. uh, sheep's milk or and or cows or goats. In what way?
1: Um, So, buffalo milk has about twice the amount of milk solids as uh, a normal cow uh, would have. So, we get twice as much cheese out of every litre. So, the buffaloes average about eight litres of milk a day across their 300-day lactation, which seems maybe to be quite a low production level compared to a cow, which would be doing probably twice as much, but... Uh, for every kilogram of cheese that you make from cow's milk, you need about 10 to 12 litres of milk to get the yield of solids. Right. But we use about four and a half litres of milk to get one kilogram of cheese. So it's twice as concentrated, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, I've always again, trying to always get my head around the litres into final product It's because I think it's what people understand is like you end up with this quite a lot <laughs> to get a little uh, especially yeah. something you know as delicious as cheese uh, mm. so the buffalino was the with the first sort of hard cheese that you made and then tell us about the evolution of the of the, the, the mozzarella style because uh, yeah. that is and I've had the I've been lucky enough to taste it super fresh and mm. it is just incredible I mean what why what is it about the flavor of really good mozzarella that has to be fresh
1: um touch a little bit on the how we got into the production side of it so my dad had contacted and we'd, we'd been working with we'll start a calendar cheese in those really early days to get his support with what we should be doing with the cheese dad needed some help obviously to get some knowledge so will suggested that we contact um, nick haddo who at that time was in his early 20s and working at Neil's yard in in england and I love hearing Nick tell the story of Dad's first contact with him because it's very typically my dad, just ringing out of the blue and inviting a guy he doesn't know to come to Italy with him to sail around on the Malfi Coast and you know, <laughs> around the, the beautiful countryside and, hey, yeah. let's learn and make some cheese. But he, he did join Dad in Italy and they found it very difficult to find anyone who would actually teach them how to make the product so Nick had some cheese making experience um, which dad did not and so that was very helpful in that when they were visiting cheese factories Nick was able to identify key things that they were doing that allowed them to sort of put together a recipe that eventually became our own and then we just he came back to Australia and spent some time with us in the cheese factory and lots of trial and error and lots of really ugly balls of mozzarella. (laughs) Came out of that cheese factory when we first got going but yeah, eventually we all got familiar with making it by hand and yeah, started selling really small volumes initially um, because there wasn't any market for it and it took a bit of time to build that up but also because we only had limited amount of milk uh, coming from the cows as they, we sort of had to wait till we had a, a certain number that had carved before we could actually bring them into production. Yeah, so we just evolved that recipe and um over the years of just learnt as we went and yeah now it's sort of we we'd stopped hand pinching the product only two or three years ago when I finally conceded that we needed a machine um, because it was just impossible to do what we were doing productively and keep the price at a level that people could afford and our bodies were all wearing out from pinching so many bowls of cheese
0: so tell me with the original herd of 42 how many oh how big is the herd now um,
1: so we have over over 500 in our herd now so when you're building up a product like ours from scratch we played this really horrible game of too much milk not enough demand and then the demand would go up and we wouldn't have enough milk to supply mm-hmm. and then by the time you get enough milk to supply you know the demand sort of Either you've exceeded it or so we just did this eh, 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 eh kind of game with our milk supply and our market. And, of course, once we started to develop the market, it opened up opportunities for other people to come in to it as well and for the imported product to come from overseas. So by the time we sort of were in a position to really be able to, to supply the market, our share of it was now diluted. Uh, and
0: it was harder to access um, those opportunities for sales. So. <laughs> tell us about, uh, well, tell us your story. I mean, how did you come to be part of the, obviously, the cheesemaking team? And you, you said you've been there working for, for a number of years. Was it something that you were immediately drawn to or was it by default? Or, what, or was there a moment that really drew you into the um. National River?
1: I guess I've just sort of evolved into the role initially I've always worked on the farm for my parents and when I finished school which was the same year that we finished that we started production um I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I actually went and studied remedial massage but that was just a part-time thing so in the meantime I was milking the buffaloes and we still were farming alpacas at that stage as well so I was working on the farm and then for the few days a week that we were doing cheese production, myself and my, my boyfriend at the time, uh, Andrew, he we would go in and actually help with the cheese production, pinching and packing and that sort of thing. I started to work a bit of casual shifts at the cheese factory for the sheep production people as well and when their cheesemakers needed to take leave the following year Andrew and when I went in and started to get trained so that we could relieve them. Uh, learned how to make their cheeses and our own. And then when they came back, we just continued to to make our products and um, just sort of grew into the role. We were some days milking, making cheese and going home and milking again back in the days when we did twice a day milking. But we quickly realised that that wasn't sustainable (laughs) and so – I think Dad was in Italy at the time, and I rang him and said, "I need you to find out whatever you can about once a day milking because this is just ridiculous—seven days a week." He just—he asked a few people and just said, "Just do it, make the change," and we haven't looked back. So we only milk our cows once a day a week, um, seven days a week, obviously, but it's allowed for a much better lifestyle for ourselves. And um, though we're not pushing the animals for production, so we haven't really long life expectancy of our animals as well and they they maintain a much better health as well and we get better quality cheese because the cheese the milk that we get from them on a once a day milking is richer than you would get from twice a day
0: so what makes really good buffalo milk cheese or mozzarella what is it
1: so with the mozzarella well ultimately it comes down to the quality of your milk if you don't have good quality milk then you won't be able to make quality cheese but this is particularly evident when you're making a cheese like the mozzarella because you're actually stretching it whereas with a with a hard cheese you're not interacting with the curd in a functional way so your your judgment of whether or not you've made a good cheese sometimes isn't clear until you've actually matured the cheese and those problems will show themselves um, during the maturation but with mozzarella it's instantly apparent that you've got problems with your milk quality when you put the hot water on that cheese and expect it to to melt and bind together and become this great big elastic beautiful I don't know what you how do you describe it really it's working with the mozzarella is a bit like doing a dance with the cheese it's such a a tactile product to work with and um, it's really quite beautiful being in the in the factory and and doing that. We still stretch the cheese by hand but we now put it into a ball making machine. So I really do miss the hand pinching days because it's quite a social event with us all standing around the, the stretching bins but the product that we get out of the machine is is equally as wonderful and a bit less taxi <laughs> on the humans.
0: I want to talk about one cheese in particular, the Annie Baxter, uh, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a, a legendary cheese, and I yeah. am somewhat obsessed with it <laughs> and use it in multiple forms. Tell us a little bit about that and how that cheese came to be. So um,
1: because we have been told that you couldn't make hard cheeses from,
0: cow- from buffalo milk, <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. I can so relate. I, 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 lo- I really love it. Well, I'm going to prove it.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, so Annie Baxter was a bit of a I guess it was a bit of an up yours to the the naysayers. Um we'd been making pecorino style cheeses with sheep milks with the sheep milk at Mount Amy Creek and of course wanted to see what the result would be doing the same thing with, with the buffalo milk and yeah it's just one of those sort of happy happy coincidences that it seemed to have um you know, the recipe that we used and the uh, flavors that developed as we aged the buffalo milk was you know, what resulted in the Annie Baxter and
0: so how do you describe it as a cheese?
1: The original Annie Baxter uh, because we were, we were making buffalo yogurt as well in our factory so we really didn't want to encourage the development of mold. So we matured our cheeses in bags, which means that you retain all of the moisture, which is part of the reason why the original Annie Baxter has this beautiful, sharp, tangy, I don't know how you compare it to other things, but um, it's, it's not hard in a sense of like we're, because it still has quite a lot of moisture in it and buffalo milk being a little bit higher in fat as well, has this beautiful rich creaminess with that you get when you eat it, so it's it's a pecorino romano style cheese, but with the buffalo influences, of slight sweetness of the milk, and yeah, it's just one of those cheeses that you have to try to really understand.
0: What I like about it is it's got that real sort of you mentioned before, like a really great little bite to it. And mm. um, one of my favourite things is I was making an omelette, you know, or something for breakfast, and I just shave a little bit of it over the top just to give it that little bit of an edge. And as a Pecorino, you know, replacement. It's it's amazing. It just adds that extra dimension to the cheese. But tell me about the name, Annie Baxter. Who is Annie Baxter?
1: So one of the things that we really wanted to do when we were making new cheeses was to move away from having them be compared with other cheeses from overseas. So we didn't want to just call it a a pecorino or whatever. We wanted to try and make names that were relevant to Australia and to our location. Uh, So Annie Baxter was the first European woman to live in our area. She actually lived on the farm or on the property where our factory is in Yambuk. She was here in 1842. She came from England with her husband and um, came across from Sydney across country with their horse and dray and settled in Yambuk. And she was an avid Um, diary writer so her diaries have actually been published it's one of the few accounts from a woman's perspective of what life was like back in those early days Uh, so portland was settled in 1836 or something like that so she was here only a few years after the settlement of victoria and she was in short she was a gunslinging horse riding dingo hunting cheesemaker (laughs) <laughs> that's my short sharp
0: awesome i think that's the best description of a of a name of a cheese i think i've heard so yep. far that's that's awesome
1: she, she had a little dairy just up the road from where our factory is and she writes in her diary that her cheeses were selling well at the belfast market which is what port Ferry used to be known as so she was probably one of victoria's very first cheese makers, and. Um, she never had any children, and she died a you know, fairly lonely sort of a life that she led once she left Yambak. Um, and so, we thought it would be pretty nice to actually just pay homage to her and the influence that she had on um, on the the region. So, yeah,
0: and it's a what an incredible tribute and what a story. And I, uh, I'm going to go and seek those diaries out. Uh, where can you find them to read?
1: The diaries, they're called A Face in the Glass by Lucy Frost and I think that the, the Melbourne Library has copies of those. Um, and there's another book called a No Place for a Nervous Woman or Nervous Lady. I think it's by Lucy Frost also, which talks about a number of pioneering females and um, she's included in that book as well. So, yeah, a well read.
0: Uh, we'll definitely put links... Uh, to those uh, in the in the in the details of, of this podcast speaking of I suppose you know evolution and uh, uh, of where things are now what are you up to now you got a new little project
1: I, I've been um, redeployed um, <laughs> <laughs> last year my dad and my mum decided that they would buy the local ice cream shop in port ferry and asked me to manage that so um, I stepped into that just before the beginning of summer last year and um, I've had a very busy summer season trading here, making delicious ice cream. And then, of course, COVID happened, so we've been sort of just ticking away here, trying to work out like everybody else what the next next phase looks like. But I just started the chairs again today, so we're hoping that with the coming of some nicer weather and um, easing of restrictions, hopefully in the next few weeks that we might be up able to start serving ice cream again see
0: some people return to town i think uh when restrictions do uh, lift and uh, i know we all look forward to it uh, especially being you know in victoria we should all get out there and encourage them uh encourage people to visit regional areas uh, indeed so tell so whereabouts is the uh, ice cream shop and what was the name again sorry
1: It's called Poco Ice Cream, and it's in Port Ferry. Um,
0: Well, well I've got to ask, is there a buffalo milk ice cream?
1: Well, there will be. Um, Actually, after the first sort of few weeks of COVID hit, we did some trials just to – because we hadn't really had time to sort of mess around with recipes and things. So I'm looking forward to to introducing some new flavours and – and definitely, there'll be some
0: buffalo milk ones in there in the mix as well. Uh, I cannot wait to get down there and taste all the things. Uh, Thaya, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yourself and Shaw River have been with the Mold Cheese Festival from the very beginning. We're massive fans, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thanks so much. No problem. No problem. Thank you so much for joining us for the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. If you're keen for more, please do follow us on the socials at at Mold cheese, or drop us an email at hello at or even better, please leave us a comment or a review. We read everything and trust us, it really helps us spread the good word about Australian cheese. Of course, we have got so many more interviews to come, so we look forward to chatting with you soon. So until next time... Cheers.